I want us to talk about the gift of a low anthropology. A few years back, the group School of Life released a video, How to Get Married. They reconfigured the traditional wedding ceremony to reflect what they believed our best social science tells us about what makes for a healthy and happy marriage. They begin the ceremony with what they call the ritual of humility. Humility, they say, is the most important emotion in a relationship. And they define humility as an ample accurate, sorrowful recognition of all one's failings and an open admission that we wish we were different and better. Each party, dressed in their finest, then reads from their personalized so-called book of imperfections. For example, one party reads, I acknowledge that I'm not good at communicating my feelings maturely. I won't say what's bothering me, but will instead expect you to read my mind And then get furious when you can't. Another says, I tend to assume if you're upset, it's something about me. After their reading, the couple faces one another and recites in unison, neither of us is fully sane or healthy. We are committed to treating each other as broken people with enormous kindness and imagination. And then the congregation, they're doing this in front of a small uh, congregation. The congregation stands and recites in unison, We are all broken. We've all been idiots. And we will be idiots again. We're all difficult to live with. We sulk and we get angry and fail to compromise. We are here to make you less lonely with your failings. We'll never know all the details, but we understand. The whole video is hilarious and instructive. A voiceover reminds listeners, self-righteousness is, after all, the great enemy of love. School of Life was started by a man named Alain de Baton. He's brilliant, wise, and he also happens to be an atheist. And what strikes me about his work is that his view of human nature sounds a lot more realistic and, ironically, a lot more biblical than many Christians. De Botan is articulating what another writer, David Zoll, calls a low anthropology in a recent book with that title. Don't let that word intimidate you, anthropology. Anthropology simply means what we believe about human nature. It's our operating theory of what people are really like. We all have an anthropology, whether we use that word or not. And here's my guiding conviction. Many of us in the church and in today's culture are suffering under the weight of what we might call a high anthropology, inflated, unrealistic expectations of what people should be like or should be doing. We are disappointed constantly when other people turn out to be, well, people. My thesis then is that to experience more freedom and contentment, to express more kindness and compassion toward one another and ourselves, we need to recover the low anthropology that the Bible portrays. You'll also find it in the world's greatest literature and apparent from your own experience. Low anthropology is a nuanced, complex understanding of human nature that helps ground us in reality. 
Humility is reality, and it's our friend. Or as I saw on a t-shirt recently, your ego is not your amigo. To be clear, low anthropology is not self-loathing. It's not shaming yourself or condemning yourself as bad, bad, bad. That more often stems from a high anthropology, from frustrated expectations, wishing we were better than we were or that we had a better past. I can't believe I did that. Or how could I have been so stupid? I'm so stupid. Or I can't believe they did that. How could they have been so blind? Those are voices of a high anthropology. If you find in yourself a disposition more toward critical judgments than compassion, that's high anthropology. That inner critic that's never satisfied, not enough, that's the voice of a high anthropology. And if you think that's not your problem, well, that makes you very different than me. I've learned a lot about myself over the last few years, but one of the most sobering is that even though my theology said one thing, in practice my life said another. I was a Presbyterian minister. Historically, we are the bunch that has emphasized total depravity, amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. But in practice, I was constantly disappointed in myself and others for not measuring up to my high standards. I recently read a book, <clears throat> reread a book I'd read more than 20 years ago, The Nature and Destiny of Man by Reinhold Niebuhr. I could tell by my notes in the margins I'd read it closely the first time, but it was also painfully clear to me that I had not understood what I was reading. Writing in the 1950s, Niebuhr was attempting to, quote, disturb the easy conscience of modern man who continues to regard himself as essentially harmless and virtuous, even after two world wars. Niebuhr wanted to reframe our understanding of human nature. That's what the whole book's about. He believed we have so misunderstood the word sin inside the church that we've practically ruined it outside the church. And with a tragic result, we no longer understand ourselves. So how can we recover our bearings? How can we regain what I've called a biblical anthropology? Well, on Tuesday nights, we've been going through probably the last book in the Bible you'd be interested in studying, the book of Leviticus. And we picked Leviticus precisely because it is so strange, so far removed from our experience, which makes Leviticus ground zero for many of the questions anyone might have about the Bible and Christianity today. If you've ever tried to read the Bible straight through, then you know what I'm talking about. You've hit the Levitical wall. On Tuesdays, we've been taking up many of the questions any thoughtful person might have about the Bible, about Leviticus. This sermon comes in the middle of that conversation, but it will also stand alone. Did you know that in Leviticus there are more words attributed directly to the Lord and the Lord said than in any other book in the Bible? So it's instructive to ask, what does Leviticus tell us about what people are really like? We can use Leviticus to sketch a more biblical anthropology that I think you might find relieving. Leviticus gives us, as one of my heroes, Parker Palmer, likes to say, 
permission to be a human being. And many of us need that permission. Well, if you have a Bible, open it to the book of Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. The first seven chapters detail five types of offerings the Lord prescribes for his people. If you look how the book opens, chapter 1, verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish and bring it to the tent of meeting. Now I know Leviticus raises all kinds of questions, and we've been tackling those. But what I want you to see for now is that a provision is being made to allow people to come into the Lord's presence. The Lord is making a way. That's how the whole book opens. Chapter 1, verse 1, the Lord called. That's one word in Hebrew, Vaikra. And that's what the book is still called in synagogues today, Vaikra. The Lord is making a way, but a way must be made. To use the word that Leviticus uses over and over, some atonement is needed for us to draw near to God. We may not use that word today, but taking away the word does not take away our need. You'll find this theme in many of the world's most loved or most famous stories. The great picture in world literature is from Shakespeare, Lady Macbeth, furiously trying to wash away the stain of blood on her hands, out, out, damn spot. Or more recently, C. Ian McEwan's novel, simply titled Atonement. McEwan is saying, Leviticus is saying, that in a very real sense, we are all like Lady Macbeth. We can say morality is relative and there's no need to feel guilty as long as you're following your heart. But there's no way we can provide for ourselves the absolution that we are seeking. Reading Leviticus today, we find the whole notion of animal sacrifice understandably troubling. We've said on Tuesdays you have to understand that in its Near Eastern context, Leviticus is actually doing something unexpected, even revolutionary. That's another sermon. All I want you to see now is that the prescribed sacrifices with which the book opens were vividly impressing upon the worshiper's heart and mind that atonement is needed. Forgiveness is possible, but that forgiveness is costly, that there is a weight, indeed a gravity, to human sin. Now, before you think I've gone all backwoods fundamentalist preacher on you, this is precisely what I'm arguing most Christians have lost our sense of today, because we tend to hear in the word sin a bad behavioral choice, often having to do with sex. It ties into one of the least attractive perceptions of the church as moral gatekeepers discerning who's been naughty. We need to recover a more nuanced biblical view of what people are really like. And one of the best places to recover this low anthropology is in Leviticus, specifically chapters 4 and 5, if you'll turn with me there. Look at chapter 4, where provisions are being made for what's called a sin offering. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, And then keep reading who's included in this provision. Verse 3, if it is the anointed priest who sins unintentionally. Verse 13, if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally. And then notice verse 22, when a leader sins. Pause there for a moment. 
Jonathan Sachs was chief rabbi in the UK and one of the leading Jewish intellectuals in the world. He wrote an amazing group of books on the first five books of the Bible. Sachs dedicated a whole essay to Leviticus chapter 4, verse 22, pointing out that for every other group, the Lord says, if, but when it comes to leaders, he just says, when. For Sachs, this underscores the great challenge inherent in all leadership and wielding power. Sachs says the text is acknowledging that leaders will always get it wrong sometimes. Not if for leaders, only when. Keep reading verse 27. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally. I want you to notice three things. First, these arrangements to make a so-called sin offering are prescribed for every individual in each group, no exceptions. The guiding assumption is that all will be guilty and each will need to make some atonement. No one is exempted from, from priest to leader to congregation. No one. Sometimes today you hear people say, we're all sinners. But in my experience, we might believe that in theory and sincerely. But when it comes to specifically owning up to much less acknowledging it, we draw back. We defend ourselves. We might even take offense if someone dares to question us or our character. It was the German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer who quipped, most churchgoers are unspeakably horrified to find a real sinner in their midst. Brian Stevenson, author of Just Mercy, writes about how he keeps advocating on behalf of death row inmates men who have been convicted of the most violent and heinous crimes. Stevenson confesses, I do what I do because I'm broken too. We've all hurt someone and been hurt. We share this condition. Stevenson isn't saying all brokenness is equivalent. He is saying the capacity to hurt, even to murder, connects us all. It's recognizing our common humanity that sustains the capacity for compassion recognizing that those same seeds are in my heart and being willing to admit there's a murderer in my heart as well. If you know that, you can't help but have empathy for fellow human beings, even and especially towards those who've hurt you. Of course, you still get angry, but you can't hold on to your anger. You can't withhold forgiveness because you realize how much you need it too. In a viral essay, Tim Keller says forgiveness is fading in our culture. The fact that it is fading and that there is so much anger and judgment on all sides tells you that we don't quite believe what Leviticus is telling us about ourselves because if we did, it would squeeze the self-righteousness right out of us. Second, did you notice these provisions are for unintentional sins. That word keeps being repeated, whoever sins unintentionally. And I hope that word surprises you because we'd expect there to be provisions for intentional mistakes we've made, but these are unintended. I didn't mean to. I didn't know. I know. The Lord knows. So often today, sin is thought of as a bad choice. You knew you weren't supposed to do X, but you did it anyway. Or you were supposed to do Y, but you did Z instead. I read a study recently where people on the street were asked how many sins they thought they committed each month. The average answer, 4.62 per month. 
Now, we can laugh at that, but behind it is an assumption we might share. That we're only guilty of what we know about. But what about the sins we commit that we aren't even aware of? Unconscious. Unintentional. If you've ever gotten a speeding ticket, you get it. You didn't know the speed limit had dropped from 55 to 35. You honestly did not see the sign. But you know, I didn't know, is not going to hold water with the state trooper. You know ignorance is not an excuse. One of the most infamous examples of unintended harm recently was creating the like button on Facebook. In the documentary The Social Dilemma, the creators explained that their motivation was to spread positivity and love in the world. See, they had a high anthropology about how people might use the like feature. Fast forward to today, confronted by rapid rise in teenage anxiety and depression, much of it stemming from constant social media comparison, and the creators lamented, that was nowhere on our radar. Unintended harm. The great picture of unintentional in the Bible is a man named Saul who became Paul. You could put a sign up over Paul's past with one word, oblivious. He was so convinced he was serving God, so sincere and so sincerely wrong. As to the law, he says, he was blameless. But now he sees how blind, how blind he'd been, blinded by his own goodness. On the other side of experiencing the grace of God, even to him, Paul says of himself now at the end of his life, I am the chief of sinners. Not I once was, but I am. That's humility. He's finally in touch with reality. Are we? A mentor asked me once, have you come to the point in your life or are your kids old enough that you've come to realize your biggest mistakes and your deepest regrets were always made with your best intentions. That hit me like a sledgehammer. You were so convinced you were doing the right thing for them, for their welfare, maybe even for God, God's honor. But has it hit you yet that the self-righteousness behind your concern might be more grievous to God than that which you were so concerned about in the other, at least if Jesus is to be our guide. That's why some of the worst things in the world are done by religious people, not fanatics, but sincere, well-intended, nice people, thinking they're doing this for God. Unintentional means you only realized later on. To quote the great film, The Bridge on the River Kwai, do you remember what the soldier says at the end of that film? My God, what have I done? And at least he realized it. Some of us go to our grave defending ourselves. But my motives were good, we complain. I believe you. But even if you believed you were innocent of so-called high-handed, deliberate sins, even if you always lived up to your own standards or followed your own advice, what does it tell you that the Lord commands an offering to be made for unintentional sins. Unintentional. There's one other thing I want you to notice. In Leviticus, there are five different types of offerings prescribed. The first three were voluntary, not required. The worshiper could voluntarily bring an offering from the herd, from the flock, 
or he could bring a bird. A bull is from the herd. That was the most costly. Sheep or goats are from the flock. Or you could bring a dove or a pigeon. The implication being that everyone, rich and poor, stands in need. But I believe it's telling us more than that. Leviticus 5 verse 14 says, The one who sins must bring a guilt offering to the Lord, quote, valued in shekels of silver. Note the emphasis on assigning value to the offering with the implication that there should be some correlation between the value of the offering and the gravity of the offense. Why am I highlighting this? Because this was a public act. The tent of meeting was at the center of the community's life, the town square, we'd say. So if Sam were bringing a bull to the tent of meeting, only Sam would know what he'd done. But what would everyone in town know? Sam messed up big time, especially if the value of the offering corresponded to the offense. I mean, it's one thing to bring a dove or a pigeon. You maybe could hide that under your tunic. But what if you showed up with a bull in tow? You can't hide that. Everyone would know. You'd be pulling your baggage behind you publicly. One of the genius insights of AA and 12-step groups is the importance of confession, accountability, identifying yourself publicly. Hello, my name is, and I'm uh, the healing power of that insight. I'm suggesting you can see 3,000 years ago in Leviticus. And because everyone did it, everyone did it. No one was shocked by it. This was not unusual. We learn from other places in the Bible that the first offering, the burnt offering, was made by the priest on behalf of himself and the people every morning and every twilight of every day. Exodus 29, verse 38. Now, what did this practice root deeply in the Israelite imagination? What did they all know about themselves? Thomas Cranmer captured it in one of the most famous prayers ever written, recited for centuries in the Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. There is no health in us, but thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Today that sounds grim. It offends our ears. About 50 years ago, it was taken out of the prayer book. That's because we've lost a vocabulary our best writers have always understood we needed to understand ourselves. Abandoning the language won't make the realities go away. It will just leave us incapable of giving voice to our own experience. Our best writers have always understood this. Herman Melville wrote, Heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. More recently, Anne Lamott wrote, Almost everyone is screwed up, broken, clingy, scared, and yet designed for joy. Even, especially people who seem to have it more or less together, are more like the rest of us than you would believe. And this is good news, that almost everyone, she writes, is petty, narcissistic, secretly insecure, and in it for themselves. Why is this good news? Because a few of the funny ones might actually long to be friends with you and me. These writers are giving us a more realistic, more human, more humane, more hopeful, low anthropology. 
When you face this, you can finally be real with another person. What a relief. No more imposter syndrome. I don't have to pretend anymore. David Zoll says a low anthropology rests on three pillars, limitation, doubleness, and self-centeredness. Limitation means recognizing that we are finite, frail, prone to make mistakes, bound by time and history, our family of origin, and all sorts of other factors that shape our behavior. In his memoir, Terry Crews said he knew his life had changed when his daughter spilled water all over the table, and instead of reacting, he just smiled and laughed, because that's what people do. We spill things. These limitations are not sins. For Reinhold Niebuhr, it was our desire to transcend our finitude that gets us in trouble. And that desire to transcend is all around us today. Do more, better, with excellence. Our expectations often just set us up for disappointment when people turn out to be, well, people. Doubleness is our recognition that we are, the Swiss physician Paul Ternier called us, a heap of contradictions. All of us. St. Augustine wrote, we are an enigma to ourselves, pulled this way and that by what the writer William James called our divided selves. The great Jewish philosopher Hannah Arendt credits the Apostle Paul for making clear we will often act in ways that baffle and confuse us. Why do I not do what I want to do, but instead keep doing what I hate? It's human to have this struggle, and you have permission to be human and to give it to others. Don't they get to be human beings too? Pillar three, self-centeredness. The human creature, Martin Luther famously put it, is curved inward on ourselves, bent. We have this amazing capacity to take anything, any subject, any conversation, and to turn it to our favorite subject, ourselves. Selfishness, we've come to realize, is the root of all of our troubles, says someone who is becoming sober-minded. What all these writers are saying is that sin is less a behavioral choice and more of a disposition. It's less of an occasional decision and more like a polluted fountain affecting all of our thoughts and actions. It's less a pothole and more a faulty wheel alignment. We wonder why we keep ending up in the ditch because we have been idiots and will be idiots again. Yes, Welcome to the human race. We've been waiting for you. The whole sacrificial system in Leviticus embedded this understanding of human nature into the common life of our spiritual ancestors. Every morning, every evening, every person, even when we didn't mean to. To drive the point home, look briefly with me at Leviticus chapter 5, verse 1. If anyone sins because they do not speak up when they hear a public charge to testify regarding something they have seen or learned about, they will be held responsible. The chapter goes on to spell out different scenarios where people either deliberately or unknowingly fail to do something they should have done. They kept silent when speaking up could have helped another, or they failed to follow through on a commitment. We don't have time to study the chapter in depth, but notice this provision is for failing to do something one was required to do. 
We tend to think of sin as acts of commission, things we did. But here we see it also has to do with omission, things we should have done but did not. My mentor, Joe Novenson, once said, Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love one another. He continued, if the greatest commandment is love, then that means the greatest sin is the failure to love. It's not just the things that we do, it's what we fail to do, and most notably, the failure to love. That sin is not just violating the law, it's the breakdown of loving. This reframes the whole discussion, because while we may congratulate ourselves for not breaking God's law in a strictly defined legal sense, how often have we failed to love? I mean, how can we possibly continue to defend ourselves? Which of us can believe that we have always loved well? When sin gets narrowed down to a violation of a moral code, holiness gets recast as sin avoidance, and the world just sees scrupulosity around particular issues with no corresponding commitment to love and justice. But if sin is a failure of love, who can stand? I mean, if there is some correspondence, as we saw in Leviticus, between the sin and the offering, I believe we are meant to ask, what sort of predicament are you and I in that we should require the crucifixion of the Son of God to atone for our lives? I mean, how catastrophic must our predicament be if it took something so catastrophic as the death of God's Son on a cross to atone for our lives? In Leviticus, they brought their sacrifices of atonement again and again, week after week, year after year. But the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that this was merely a copy and a shadow preparing us to understand that atonement is needed, forgiveness is possible, but that forgiveness always cost. See, they knew, we know, they knew the blood of animals could not Atone. It could not give them assurance and confidence to draw near with a true heart and stand in God's presence. Leviticus was preparing them, forming their imaginations, helping them and helping us to admit and confess that our need is great, so much graver and greater than we would ever dare admit. Yet God, who knows the truth about our condition better than we could ever know our own hearts, God has made a way for us, and not from what we bring to him. Out of the resources of his own life, God doesn't ask us to spill our blood to atone for our lives. God pours out his own blood. In Jesus Christ, God in human form offers himself, substitutes himself, sacrifices himself. The good shepherd becomes the Lamb of God, because forgiveness always comes at a cost to the one granting the forgiveness. To forgive is to absorb the cost. On the cross, God made things right by absorbing the cost of our sins into his life to atone for our lives once and for all. The Bible puts it, Hebrews 10, verse 10, once and for all. Leviticus is preparing us for what the cross of Jesus will show us. 
The gravity of our sin was so great that nothing on earth was sufficient to atone for it except the self-offering of the Son of God. But he did it. He did it. Paul Zoll once put it, the lower your anthropology, the higher your Christology will be. Do you see this leads to freedom? To be able to openly admit that we do wish we were different and better? We can admit that. We no longer have to pretend. It leads to more contentment. You know why contentment is so elusive? Because it is a spiritual law, no less true than the law of gravity, that contentment and humility always ride tandem. You'll only have one to the measure you actually embrace the other. A low anthropology also makes possible the community that we've always wanted because it produces so much compassion in us. I mean, if a group of professing atheists can stand and recite in unison, none of us is fully sane or healthy. We're all broken. We've all been idiots and will be idiots again. We are difficult to live with. How much more can the church say that? When? How? Only if we recover a more realistic, more human, more biblical anthropology. In closing, I'm concerned some of you will hear in this a permission to feel rotten about yourselves. So for those of us who have a hard time accepting that God likes us, you might like these words from Martin Luther. God receives none but those who are forsaken, restores health to none but those who are sick, gives sight to none but the blind. He does not give saintliness to any but sinners, nor wisdom to any but fools. In short, he has mercy on none but the wretched and gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace. That is the gospel. The gospel transforms our shame into dancing. It takes our tears, our real tears of confession, and turns them into shouts of joy. Yes, he did it. As we go low and get lower, we are surprised to discover that we are going down, down, deeper and deeper into the love of Jesus. It's only in going low that we discover love is the ground of all reality. That's not wishful thinking. It's the only thing in this universe that can restore us to sanity. Yes, permission to be a human being. That's the gospel, even from the book of Leviticus. See you next week. Thank you.